0: New York is often referred to as the concrete jungle. The paved and developed landscape offers plenty of advantages to its residents. But there's a lot to be said for having access to green spaces as well. Not only are trees, flowers, and other plant life easy on the eyes, they're important components of a healthy and balanced ecosystem. Good morning. I'm George Boraki, And I'm Robin Shannon. As part of our Strike
1: Accord campaign, WFUV has been featuring public service announcements and news stories highlighting the efforts of community gardeners and others working to green the metropolitan region. Our coverage continues this morning with a special hour of programming on the topic. That means Fordham Conversations and Cityscape won't be heard this week but they'll be back at their regular times next Saturday.
0: The movement to create more green space around New York City is a relatively recent one. Back in the 1970s, one organization used subversive means to introduce plant life to the urban decay they saw around them. I talked with Steve Frillman of the Green Gorillas. So take us back to the early 1970s. What was the city like that led to the creation of the Green Gorillas?
2: Well, back in the 1970s, for anybody who was living in New York back then, you'll remember that um, it was a struggling economy, high fuel prices, and landlords all over New York City were walking away from their buildings or burning their buildings down, and the city was almost bankrupt. So the best they could really do was tear buildings down, fence and lock vacant lots, so the city was littered with vacant lots. And we actually got started, the Green Gorillas, in in the Lower East Side. An artist named Liz Christie actually started to get her friends together and they started to do just small actions. They would create, they call them seed grenades with seeds and soil and throw them over the fences of vacant lots. They planted sunflower seeds in various places. They used to do sort of like flash mob cleanups where they'd go on a block and just clean up. Where and, were they uh, doing this primarily? This was, they started in the Lower East Side and then actually their first big project was a large vacant lot on the corner of Bowery and Houston Street, which they went into, cleaned out, and then they convinced the city to rent it to them for a dollar a month, and that was their first community garden site. And from that site on Bowery and Houston, they really sparked a movement, and they went around to other people in the East Village and the Lower East Side and Chelsea, and then they moved uptown and helped people create community gardens in Harlem, South Bronx, Brooklyn, And then in 1978, they convinced the city to create a program called the Green Thumb Program. Which is still in existence today. Yeah, absolutely. From 1978 on, if you lived in a community that had, if you lived on a block with a dirty, nasty, vacant lot, this thing called community gardening was a tool that you could use to clean it out, get all the negative activity out of it, all the garbage. Typically, it attracted the kind of activity that you don't want your children walking by. You don't want your... Community to have to deal with drugs, prostitution, prostitution loitering, all that stuff. And so you could get a lease from Green Thumb for a dollar a year and you could create a community garden. So, in those early activities, and what was interesting about uh, New York City is the early green gorillas didn't really have a vision for where any of this was going to go. They sort of saw themselves as doing gorilla gardening. They didn't have a vision, they didn't even know that they were sparking something that would now, 41 years later, be this really well-established way for people in communities to take ownership over land and grow food and engage the community. So it was a very, it was kind of an interesting kind of unique beginning for us in, in New York City.
0: Now, land in New York is, of course, very valuable, especially for developers. There's no question about that. There's a lot of money to be made. So that being
2: said, how much of a challenge
0: was it for community gardeners to preserve these gardens through the years?
2: Well, it's a, this is a little bit of a tale of decades. Obviously, in the beginning, there wasn't any pressure on any of this land. There was so much vacant land in New York City. There were so many vacant lots. The city couldn't even deal with them just a little bit of kind of benign neglect. So really, the green gorillas and the early community gardeners played this really vital role. Obviously, as the years went on, um, there was more and more pressure on this vacant land. Right now, the number of community gardens we have in New York City is a bit of a moving number. Um, But there's more than, in terms of those green thumb community gardens, there's more than 600. And the way we got to 600 was that new gardens would be created every year, but gardens would also be lost to development. Mm -hmm. Um, So then there has been pressure over the years. And then in the 90s, Mayor Giuliani actually made a move to try to sell a bunch of the community gardens. And a whole group of people, community gardeners, foundations, nonprofits sort of rallied to try to preserve these sites. And we were able to preserve over 100 of the gardens. Um, There's a lot less vacant land now in New York City, so that's gonna lead to some interesting conflicts. The good thing is that in the Bloomberg administration they actually created a new set of rules. Most of the green thumb gardens are under the the aegis of the Parks Department. Basically the city has said with these new rules as long as it serves as a functioning active community garden it's going to be safe. So but there will still be some sites for various reasons that and also you know the new administration the de Blasio administration is very interested in building affordable housing. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be interesting to see there will probably be some pressure on some of these community garden sites certainly moving forward.
0: I know that these community gardens couldn't exist without the hard work of volunteers, so I would imagine critical to make sure that people are rolling up their sleeves, that they're staying involved to maintain these gardens so they can exist going on into the future, and it doesn't look like they're just, again, being abandoned and sitting there vacant.
2: One of the things we do at Green Gorillas is we really work with community gardeners. You're right. These are all volunteers. They have lives. They have jobs. They're also often active in their communities in other ways. They're active in the community board. They're active in their churches. So it's a it's a lot to just keep a community garden going. And one of the things we also really work with and talk to community gardeners about is as much as possible every day during the growing season to just be open, to be a resource, to have activities going on. Because the more that a community garden is connected to the community, not only connected to just the people in the community, but to other neighborhood institutions, schools, churches, community centers, it's going to become an anchor just like those places are anchors. And it's going to be much easier and much more effective. The gardeners will be much more effective getting support, getting support to get resources into the garden, getting support to make sure that garden sticks around, hopefully forever and ever.
0: So talk to me a bit about the evolution of the Green Gorillas from those early days of Liz Christie lopping seed bombs over fences. Sure.
2: sure. Well, when we first started out, we were really uh, a place where it was lots of volunteers. They started having meetings in Liz Christie's kitchen on Mulberry Street. And then when they got actually Liz Christie, one of the things that helped uh, spark the movement and help really Green Gorillas grow is that was also the beginnings of public radio in New York City, WBAI and Liz Christie had a radio show on WBAI so she was sort of spreading the word about this community garden thing and uh lots of people got involved so then they started to have meetings in community centers and it really was a large group of volunteers so they would have a meeting they'd have a membership meeting and somebody would come and say we got a call from a group up on 153rd street and they would like they've got this site and they need somebody to help them come and dig out an area so they can put in a pond or build a gazebo or they just have a bunch of rocks that they need moved and 20 people would raise their hand and a work crew would be formed and that group of volunteers would go up and help them. So it really in the beginning was this broad based uh, volunteer effort as the community gardening movement developed and it was less about sort of creating new gardens and more about helping these volunteer grassroots groups maintain the gardens they already had and make them better make them stronger, make them bigger, grow more food, engage more children, all those things you can imagine. Green Gorillas also shifted and became more of a professional organization with paid staff, with community organizers, with people who knew about horticulture. And it was—it was really became just as much about community development as it was, hey, we've got a vacant lot and what do we want to do with it? So, we, so Green Gorillas sort of developed right along with the community gardening movement in New York City.
0: What are among some of your flagship programs today?
2: Uh, well, you know, our, as I mentioned, our approach is really as much about the the people stuff as it is about the plant and gardening stuff. So we have a couple of initiatives at Green Gorillas that really address that. Um, one of them is called the Harvest for Neighborhoods campaign, where we work with almost 100 food-growing community garden groups, mostly in central Brooklyn, Bedford-Stuyvesant, East New York, Brownsville, some in the South Bronx, some in Harlem. And it's really about using uh, food growing, using urban agriculture as a tool, not only to help them grow more food, but to engage more people in the harvest, to have events going on, to help teach people about and engage people in healthy eating and healthy cooking, Um, getting out into garden. You know, gardening is really good exercise. Anybody out there listening, Mm -hmm. if you're trying to find a fun exercise, you don't go to the gym you got that gym membership and you don't use it. If you can find a place to garden, it actually, it's a good way to stay healthy. So we also have a very vibrant youth program called the Youth Tillers Program. Every year we hire anywhere from seven, eight, nine, ten 10 teenagers and we put them through a summer of helping food growing community gardeners grow more food, building compost bins, installing rainwater harvesting systems. And then again, getting involved in uh, healthy cooking demonstrations and things like that.
0: Someone um, needs to pick up where the previous generation left yeah, off. So it's critical I mean, to get young yeah. people involved.
2: I mean, a lot of the community garden groups that we work with are folks that have been doing this now for 25, 30, 40 years, and they're not getting any younger. So, And there's a tremendous amount of interest among young people. You know, in some ways, we decided at Green Gorillas to make our youth program as much of a job training program as it is like a youth engagement program. So we actually create paid internships, because it's also tough for for youth to get summer jobs these days. There, there, um, you know, a lot of young people who would love to work for, in the summer and do something that engages them and piques their interest don't have that many opportunities. So, it's it's helping with that as well.
0: I don't want to get you into any trouble, but do you have a favorite community garden? No, I don't. Have a, <laughs> I
2: can't. I couldn't possibly pick a favorite community garden. But we certainly have garden groups that we work with, as I said in on the Lower East Side, in the East Village, out in central Brooklyn, that are um, up in the South Bronx, up in Harlem. There's certainly some gardens that are more active than others or have certain unique activities more than others. But no, I definitely are, you know, if if I was allowed to pick a favorite, probably the, not really a favorite, but sort of the one that has the most sort of history for us is that first community garden on Bowery and Houston Street. And it's actually named after Liz Christie. She passed away in the mid 80s. So that's the one that's probably sort of nearest and dearest to our heart. It's a piece of history. It's a piece of history, right. Sort of our birthplace in a way.
0: Steve, thanks so much for your time.
2: You're welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. That
0: was Steve Frillman of the Green Gorillas. Check out greengorillas.org for more information. As you just heard, the Green Gorillas started as an underground community movement.
1: These days, many environmental initiatives are backed by the city and even some celebrities. The New York Restoration Project is one such organization. We talk with their executive director, Deborah Martin.
0: So take me back to the very beginning, Deborah. How did the New York Restoration Project start?
3: Uh, We were founded in 1995 by Bette Midler. She had moved back to New York from L.A. and she was driving around the city and she noticed that there were certain parks that uh, that were in poor condition. Filled with trash, uh, and plants were not cared for. There were no beautiful flowers or beds or anything, and she started speaking with the Parks Department. And in partnership with Parks, she started NYRP. Initially, it was to to pick up trash and clean up parks that um, were were uh, in northern Manhattan, Fort Washington and Fort Tryon is where we first worked, and uh, and the that. Activity led to greening, and and over time uh, expanded a great deal. So now we we do much more than just cleaning up parks, but we still that's still at the heart of what we do.
0: What kinds of activities are you involved with today?
3: So we still work in parks. In partnership with the parks department, we uh, work in Highbridge Park and in Sherman Creek Park and the Harlem River. Uh, we also acquired fifty-two community gardens in nineteen ninety-nine that were uh, slated to be sold for development. And uh, these, some of these gardens were places where people had been gardening for generations. And uh, Bet felt that they should not be developed. And so we acquired them. So we still own them and manage them. We are also New York City's partner in the effort to plant a million trees. We're responsible for a quarter of the million trees. And then uh, we do all sorts of ad hoc plantings and, and cleanups all over the city. All, at at you know, any given moment, we might be renovating a senior center. We might be planting uh, trees at a NYCHA complex. So it really depends on where the need is at a particular moment.
0: How much education do you do to make people aware of the importance of open spaces, of maintaining them?
3: you know that's a really interesting question because we do environmental education with kids formally in the sense that like we'll teach kids we we have ongoing programs where we teach children how to plant things and cultivate them and harvest things but our most impo- the most important way we educate people is really through our, our operations teams, who are much, much more than just people kind of maintaining our gardens. They're sort of on the front lines, and our community engagement teams also are on the front lines, and they're saying to people in the community, come on in, know your neighbors, and in essence, like, kind of undertake this project together. So we'll, we'll supply education about, like, if you want to learn how to plant stuff we 'll teach that if you want to learn how to compost we 'll teach that if you want to learn how to prune as much as you want to learn as a, one of our a member of our garden group we 'll supply the education so that really our staff have a kind of um, um, multivalent sort of responsibility because they're planting, they're cleaning, they're fixing fences, but they're all, they also know who Sheridan is at Jane Bailey. They also know uh, when maybe someone who was a gardener died. They know if there's crime in the neighborhood and maybe we need to kind of talk to the local precinct. Uh, they know when kids are coming in and they might take time out from picking up trash to talk to the kids. So we engage with our communities and with the land in a way that's really unique in New York City and, to my knowledge, nationally, in the sense that the land we own, our, our staff is engaged with helping the communities that surround those pieces of land with understanding that our land is an opportunity for them to grow stronger.
0: That being said, what would you say are the biggest challenges to greening New York City?
3: That's a good question, and there are sort of different kinds of challenges, you know uh in a practical way, like often you don't have sun, often your uh soil is not good quality soil, it might be filled and filled with like old construction debris, so I mean, there are sort of practical challenges, and there are ways to deal with all of that sort of challenge, like you can plant um you can plant shade tolerant things, or you can fix the soil or bring in new soil. So there are ways to deal with the practical things. The trickier thing, I think, is, um, you know, we, we maintain our gardens, but we don't really have enough staff to, to maintain them uh, in the way that we might like it every day. And even if we did, I'm not sure we would, because our goal is to have people come in and, and manage it themselves. So the trickiest thing is to get people to kind of talk to one another and figure out, like, how are we going to keep this place open? How are we going to decide who gets this bed and who gets that bed? That's the trickier and, in some ways, the more, um, ultimately, like, the more meaningful and satisfying part.
0: What about financial challenges? Is there enough investment being made into greening the city?
3: You know, I think the short answer to that is no. And... uh, you know historically, the parks department uh, it, there's a conversation going on right now about park equity and and whether uh, parks in uh, low income communities receive adequate resources or equal resources to those uh, in uh, more resourced communities and in the end, really um, in the perfect world there would be more people and more resources for open spaces but i'm optimistic and i believe that as we understand more the critical role that open space plays in the quality of in quality of life and of course every person in an intuitive way understands that you know it's good to be around green things it's good to be around flowers and trees like everyone gets that in a certain way what i think people will come to understand more and more is it's not just that it feels nice, it's that it's actually good for your mental and physical health it actually helps decrease crime, it actually helps increase business revenue all of those things um, we understand kind of intuitively but the sort of data isn't there to say like okay these things are actual results of green spaces and so it's a little bit of a, what we experience in our green spaces today is a little bit of a tragedy of the commons in the sense that like you know, mow the lawn, plant some flowers, whatever. But ultimately, I think we'll, we'll look back 100 years from now and say, oh, my God, how could we under-resource these green spaces? They're actually one of the most valuable resources we have as a city. Uh, and every dollar that we invest in green spaces results in, in um, uh, a better quality of life for our citizens.
0: I would imagine that many of the gardens do indeed reflect the population living in that community mm-hmm. in different ways.
3: Very much so. Uh, for example, right now we're working on a garden called the Willis Avenue Garden, which is in Mott Haven in South Bronx. And that garden is a particular, um, it's a beloved garden in New York's Puerto Rican community. In fact, um, Puerto Rican Day Parade will often end, at least part of the people who would celebrate on that day will end up with a huge party, sometimes hundreds of people at this garden. And um, so that garden, the raised beds grow many of the things that you would find in, in a kitchen garden in Puerto Rico. And there's a casita there. So it's very much reflective of that culture.
0: So here we are heading deeper into summer, Deborah. And I understand you have some very interesting things planned that will take place in the community gardens.
3: We do. Um, for a long time now, we've done all sorts of programs in our gardens. We have yoga classes. We have City Chicken Institute where we raise chickens. Uh, We'll have dance and musical performances. This summer, we have a new program called Arts Ace and we're partnering in Brooklyn with BAM and in the Bronx with the Bronx Museum of Arts to bring uh, film, dance, and theater to our gardens. So, you know, as we were talking earlier about how uh, NWRP, we really try to work with our communities to make sure that whatever we do in the gardens is what the community wants and needs. The arts programs, in a way, are really designed to uh, let people come into the gardens and meet one another in a happy situation where, like, we don't charge anything and you can come into these beautiful spaces and experience, like, watch a film with your kids or experience a dance performance and get to know your neighbors and maybe consider joining the garden group as a a way to, to Build community, so that's happening this summer. And you know, if you're listening to this and you want to join us, look go on our website. You can you can find out. There's a calendar of all the events.
0: Deborah, thanks so much.
3: It's my pleasure.
0: Deborah Martin is the executive director of the New York Restoration Project. Find them at nyrp.org. The New York Restoration Project has its hands in several different projects
1: across the city, like the Million Trees NYC initiative. We caught up with them at Alley Pond
0: Park. In Queens.
4: My name is Shalini Beeth. I'm the Deputy Director of Million Trees NYC at Parks.
0: So what specifically is Million Trees NYC?
4: Million Trees NYC is an initiative to plant and care for a million new trees across New York City's five boroughs by 2015.
0: How long ago did this program start?
4: It was launched in 2007. We have planted more than 834,000 trees already, so we're really excited about that.
0: Chugging along at a pretty rapid clip, aren't you?
4: Yes, indeed. Absolutely. And uh, today we're here to actually uh, care for uh, many, many, many of the trees that we've planted, not only here in Alley Pond Park, but also in several parks citywide.
0: Where are you primarily planting trees through this initiative?
4: We're planting in all five boroughs. Um, We're planting along our city's streets, public right-of-way areas. We're also, like today, um, you know, as in today's park, planting in our more forested and natural areas, such as parklands. Um, And our partner, New York Restoration Project, uh, parks in the more privately owned areas that we don't have jurisdiction over.
0: There are a lot of volunteers out here assisting you today. Do you rely mostly on volunteer support?
4: We consider volunteer uh, support to be very important. Uh, it's a very important uh, component of the Million Trees NYC initiative. Um, as you know, caring for these trees is a huge uh, part of our initiative. Uh, we lead free volunteer programs, uh, and yes, absolutely, we rely on volunteers to help us care for trees in, on the streets and as well as in the parks.
0: Do these volunteer programs include education?
4: Yes, absolutely. We, for example, we have a tree LC program, as we call it, to educate volunteers about um, tree care. We provide them, uh, you know, basic information about how a tree works, uh, what benefits trees provide us. And then we uh, do a little demonstration of what tree care means. So picking up litter, watering trees, mulching, cultivating the soil. Um, and then if they pledge to care for a tree, we give them a free toolkit so they can continue this work on their own
0: educate us a little bit about why trees are important.
4: Sure, trees are a vital component of of our urban ecosystem. Uh, They help uh, hold stormwater when there are massive rainfall events and flood events. Uh, They clean our air, they provide oxygen, they beautify our city, which is a very important piece. And they just bring happiness to people. I mean, I think trees, a city without trees, I, I can't imagine what it would look like. And that's what we hear our volunteers say every day. They really appreciate the beauty Uh, that it brings, the the shade that it brings, and how it cools our city as well.
0: No doubt Superstorm Sandy really took down a lot of trees throughout New York City. What kind of impact did that have on your program?
4: Yeah, I mean, Sandy was was tough on New York as a whole. Um, We, you know, we're going to continue to plant trees uh, wherever possible and fill in the gaps, and that's It just brings up the importance of building resiliency. Again, stewardship, a stewardship day like today and continued stewardship is the key to kind of building that resiliency, making our trees uh, healthier, stronger so they can grow into mature trees. And so we can kind of sustain the impact a little bit better and have a more resilient urban ecosystem.
0: There are a lot of young people out here today. We're looking at them now hard at work, putting mulch around these trees. What comes to mind when you look at all of these young people doing this kind of work?
4: It makes me smile. I mean, that's what it's all about. We reach out to um, local schools, Girl Scout groups, any youth, and local residents as well. It's all about engaging volunteers, especially youth. It's about teaching them that these trees are, are growing up with them, you know, and just engaging them and helping them connect with trees at an early age is really the key to keeping them coming back and caring for them in the long term.
0: Would you say that a lot of New Yorkers take trees for granted?
4: I think something that I've noticed just working at Million Trees is that... Raising awareness is key. I mean, sometimes, yeah, sometimes uh, maybe someone walks by a tree and just doesn't notice it. But when you, uh, say, come to a workshop or, or or come out to an event like this, it changes your perspective about trees. You do notice it and you do understand how important it is for your urban ecosystem. So that's what we're trying to do through our stewardship programs and stewardship events, we want people to connect with trees. We want them to feel that they can get involved in caring for them and that um, they can make an impact in in their survival.
0: What kinds of trees are you primarily planting through this program?
4: We plant uh, many, many different species of trees. It really depends on um, the site. So, uh, I mean, I. We plant uh, 160 at least species of uh, street trees. So, um, when it comes to street trees, we really have our uh, city foresters survey blocks. You know, they look for any utility lines, of course, and make sure make sure the areas you know, prepped for planting. So in some areas you may not be able to plant, so they look at things like that. They also look at the light and and how much water they get. So it really depends on the site. It's very site-specific, and species are hand-selected by our foresters so they can uh, survive and thrive in in whatever area they're uh, planted
0: in. Are there any particular trees that stand up better in a rugged city like New York?
4: Yeah, I think that's a tough question. Um, I really want to emphasize that it's... uh, the work of our foresters to really survey the area and decide based on the environmental conditions uh, what the right fit for that area is. So they select the species that is best equipped to handle whatever the conditions of the site are.
0: What's your favorite type of tree?
4: Oh that's an even tougher question. I, I love um, sweetgums. Um, they have a very characteristic uh, leaf shape and uh, if, you, if you nibble on them, they, they have a characteristic taste as well. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend doing that. They're just a beautiful tree, um, but I, I love all trees. It's hard to pick one.
0: Shalini Beeth is the deputy director of Million Trees NYC. Nancy Cohn is the director of Green Thumb in New York City. Green Thumb is a city-sponsored organization that provides support and resources to community gardeners. We recently caught up with her at Carolina Garden in East Harlem.
5: Green Thumb is actually the nation's largest community gardens program. Um, we provide technical and programmatic support for over 600 gardens throughout the five boroughs of New York. We provide um, lumber, soil, compost uh, for all of our gardens. We also provide a series of workshops and educational opportunities. Um, we help groups organize um, to Build gardens. We have a wonderful operations team, which is the land restoration project that helps to build. Today, we have a workshop happening uh, to build a garden house for Carolina Garden. So we provide a varied uh, aspect of services for the city.
0: Carolina Garden, based in East Harlem, tell me about this garden.
5: This garden is um, situated between Lexington and Park Avenue, on a hundred and twenty-second Street. And it's a small garden that's very, um, we're just getting it up and running and started. We're building a structure for them today. We have volunteers coming out as well as my crew here. The What we do at Green Thumb is really because of the gardeners. We exist because of the gardeners. Um, they community members organize to come together to preserve green spaces throughout New York City and to build gardens that can be utilized as meditation spaces, relaxation, Uh, Growing food, providing access to healthy foods is really a big part of urban farming and urban gardening throughout New York, and um, they're really passionate people. I have met, I've started this position in December, and I've met a series of gardeners. Everyone I've met is extremely passionate, focused on different things really just to make their communities better and thrive and increase the quality of life for everyone in the neighborhood.
0: How varied are the gardens that you work with?
5: They're very um, different, they're very unique. But one of the wonderful things about the Green Thumb program and the gardens throughout New York City is that they're really unique. Um, they are characteristics reflect of the community. Um, so with the, within the gardens, it's really what the community wants to see. So they vary depending on size. Some We have urban farms and we have small community gardens. So um, it really depends on what the community wants and what they put into it. We have art structures to, to um, murals to food production. I mean you name it, we have the range. So our gardens are open to the public. Um, we do require that open hours are posted on the sign so that they know when the garden is open because they are fenced for security purposes. Um, and the, the neighborhood really benefits from it because they can access it as a green space. To go in an urban center like we live in in New York City, you want to find that little piece of quiet. So it's really, that's really what the benefits are for the community on a large scale. Also, a lot of our gardens are producing food, as I, as I originally mentioned, and sometimes they produce so much food that they're giving it away to the general public. So there are multiple benefits. Also, people come from all over the world. I actually was in um, one of our gardens in the Lower East Side, and I met some individuals from Denmark yesterday. And people travel from all over the world just to come to see our community gardens.
0: Great, Nancy. Thanks so much. Thank you. That was Nancy Cohn, director of Green Thumb in New York City. You're tuned to 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Polarkey.
1: And I'm Robin Shannon. One of the most beautiful gardens in New York has got to be the Botanical Garden. So it's no surprise that people might want to learn their own gardening skills from the best. Bronx Greenup is their community outreach program. And we talk with the director, Ursula Chance.
6: Our program, it's been around since 1988, and we provide horticultural advice, technical assistance, and training to community gardeners, urban farmers, school groups, pretty much anyone interested in growing food and greening the Bronx. At the beginning of our program, a lot of it was cleaning up um, garbage-strewn lots that were, you know, prevailing in the Bronx. And... Pretty much the Borough President asked the Botanical Garden to assist these volunteer efforts that were just organically happening, people just wanting to do something positive in their neighborhoods, um, wanting to clean it up, just provide some beauty in their neighborhoods, grow food, and that's how our program started. We work with schools, we work with community gardens, we work with urban farms, um, organizations that have want to set up gardens that are open to the community. Right now, there's over 150, close to 200 actually now, of groups in our database that we work with. In a given year, we probably get to about 70, but then all our workshops are free and open to the public, so people from other organizations and gardens come to our workshops and training programs. Each garden and farm are very unique to the community in which they reside. Um, it's you know definitely the individuals in the in the neighborhood that make that garden and make it the special and unique place that it is. I enjoy working with the the many individuals in the borough who inspire me, every, you know, every day pretty much seeing their hard work and excitement and dedication to doing something positive in their neighborhood to making a difference. We're all so busy and taking that extra time that you have to do something. I mean, something that you love, definitely like people who we're working with, they love plants, they love gardening, They, they get a joy out of it, and they want to share it. And I think working with individuals like that is just inspiring to me. What we focus on and what we see is just how important these spaces are and how much they provide to the to the community around them and to the larger community and that's pretty much what what we emphasize. Just recently, we helped start this garden at a school, PS 207, in the Kingsbridge neighborhood in the Bronx. And these students, I was blown away because they wrote such beautiful thank you cards to us. And I just I, I just try to share them with everyone. We did this about a a few weeks ago, and. Um, We just put in a few raised beds. There was a parent, Consuela Hernandez, who's also the head of the PTA at the school, and she helped organize this day. And it was just great. Um, We built some boxes. We had some of our students who've done the Grow More Veggies certificate program come out and help us. We brought soil, compost, veggie starts, and the kids just had such a wonderful time. It was just a beautiful morning. They got to fill the beds. They got to play in the soil. They got to see the worms, see centipedes, plant plants, and these cards were really moving to me because for some of the kids it was their first time planting something. Um, you just see like the, their, their joy and excitement in participating just for that one morning in this garden, and um, it's just moving to me because it's something that It just seems so small, and you see that it does. It does have a a lasting impact, even if this garden isn't here forever. I think the memory for these children of participating in it will stay with them. This one said, Dear Botanical Garden, thank you for helping us plant in the garden. Thank you for giving us the soil. I felt happy because this was the first time planting. Um, Yeah, this one said... It was fun putting the soil in their bed, and when we put the baby plant in the soil and water the plants, i like to put the soil in the boxes. And then this one, they had a picture of the truck. All of us, you know, they had themselves unloading the soil, putting in the beds, watering the plants that they planted.
0: Ursula Chance is the director of Bronx Greenup, New York Botanical Garden's community outreach program. Learn more at nybg.org. New York City is a highly
1: developed urban environment, so people looking to green their neighborhoods are getting creative. Besides working on the ground, gardeners are looking up to find more space to plant. Jason Alosio is an urban ecologist, the founder of St. Rose's Garden, and a Ph.D. candidate in biology at Fordham University. We discuss the movement towards green roofs in New York City. So, Jason, how exactly does a green roof help the environment?
7: Well, they help the environment in a lot of different ways, They reduce temperatures in the city. They capture storm water, so they reduce uh, the demand on our sewer infrastructure. They provide uh, habitat for all wild things in our cities. They are beautiful for people to look at. They reduce sound pollution in the city by absorbing sound. They actually absorb particulate matter in the air, and so they actually reduce the, um, the particulate matter and the pollution in air. And uh, they can also you can also grow vegetables on roofs, and you can actually produce food from them so they so they help the environment in a lot of different ways so
1: um there are different types of green roof design, so describe what like the simplest green roof design might be
7: yeah, so if you want to think of a green roof, you can think of it as a layer cake, and on top of a roof, you have your roof surface, and then you put a few layers that protect the surface of the Uh, roof. And then you put um, a layer that allows water to move around laterally on the roof, a drainage layer. And then you put a surface that protects the roof from root damage. And then you put soil on top of that, just an inch. You can put as little as an inch of soil on a roof. And then you put plants inside that. And usually you have to put plants that are pretty hardy uh, at living in a roof environment because on a roof, it's quite hot, really sunny. And uh, it's, it's a tough place to live. So you have to be a pretty tough plant to live up there.
1: And that was my question because I, I would think that, like you said, you need, there are certain plants that would be conducive more to an urban environment than, you know, the, the, the country. So how do you know what plant or veggie to pick to grow on a rooftop?
7: Yeah, well, if you're growing just regular plants, uh, the most typical plant that we use is a plant called sedum. It's a succulent. It's similar to a cactus or a jade plant, if you're familiar with either of those. It's got a waxy layer on the leaf that holds in moisture really well. Because on a roof, it's kind of like living on the top of a mountain or on the side of a cliff. It's like windy. Yeah, it's windy. It's hot. It's sunny. It's a really tough place to live. And you have to be a really tough plant to live there, a hardy plant. And so these succulents, these um, sedums, really are some of the best-performing plants in these kinds of environments.
1: So now when people place a green roof on top of their buildings, do they usually have to choose between something that's visual um, and and a plant that is pretty as opposed to a plant that might be a vegetable? Like you have to choose one or the other now? Is that how they— determine how to make certain green roofs in the city or usually?
7: No, that's a good question. You know, usually when you're when you're building a green roof, you absolutely have to have in mind what what it is that you want. And you also have to take into consideration what you can physically put on your roof because of the structural constraints of that roof. So anytime you build a green roof, you absolutely have to consult with a structural engineer or an architect um, and evaluate the blue plans of the building to make sure that it 's structurally sound once you do that, then you know how much soil that you can put on the green roof and I say soil but i 'm going to i 'm referring to it as soil, but it 's really a green roof growing media. And it's really sort of a sandy, growing media that's composed of a variety of different things. And it's not really like your typical soil that you would find on the ground or potting soil. It's actually like um, an aggregate mix of porous materials, sandy materials, porous materials, and just a little bit of organic matter. And it's more like something you would find down at the beach. And it's well-drained. It doesn't hold a lot of water. But when it dries out, it stays heavy. It doesn't become very light like a potting soil. Because if if a soil dries out on a roof, gets very dry up there, very hot and sunny, all the material could blow away and you could lose it. And when it rains, potting soil will will soak up a astronomical amount of water, which will result in very, very heavy loads on your roof, which could collapse your roof. So it's very, very important to always consult with a structural engineer before you do a green roof construction. But once you've figured out that you can, you have a certain structural capacity on the green roof, then you can decide, okay, what do I wanna do on there? How much money do I wanna spend? Um, because that's a major factor to consider as well. Um, green roofs can range in cost from, you know, 4 or 5 dollars per square foot up to 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 dollars per square foot depending on how much growing media you put on there soil. And the types of plants that you put on a green roof is really dependent upon how much growing media you put on that green roof because different plants require different depths. Of soil, in order to be able to efficiently grow
1: so when i 've heard <laughs> of green roofs as i 've as I've done some some research i 've found that there are different types of green roofs, for example um, ornamental green roofs um, and i 'm going to ask you to help me define some of these yeah um, there 's also they called combination deck setting green roofs yeah. what are the different types of green roofs people can think about
7: yeah, so once you 've considered the structural limitations of your roof. Then you can say, all right, well, let's say I don't have any structural limitations. What's the full spectrum? What can I do? So the simplest form of a green roof is one inch of growing media on top of a roof creates essentially like a lawn, a living lawn. It's often called a sedum a mat, a living mat of green material. And it's just a short little thing, a couple inches tall of plants, and it just looks like a, a lawn. And it's beautiful, and it's very, very lightweight. And you can install that on almost any roof, and it's the cheapest type of system to install. From there, you start to install deeper media, and you can install a wider variety of different plants. And you can do combinations of planter boxes with vegetables in them, and a deck area with a grill and uh, an awning growing um, any number of different ornamental trees and all sorts of uh, beautiful flowers all over the place. And that would be more of like a rooftop garden. And there are ecological benefits and ecosystem benefits to growing um, those types of rooftop gardens as well. So you have the uh, very simple seed mat. Then you have a ornamental garden that can have the cedar mat and a variety of different other things. These types of roofs that have deep growing media are called intensive green roofs. And on these types of roofs, you can put trees and really large plantings. And examples include on top of the new Facebook and Google headquarters, both have some extensive and intensive green roofs on them.
1: Do you find that most people in New York are um, creating green roofs on their building tops for the beauty of it or for the environmental
7: reasons? Well, the city is funding construction of green roofs on private buildings through grants as well as through public funds on their their own buildings for purposes for ecological purposes. They, so they recognize the importance of the, the environmental aspect. The city put out a uh, plan called Plan YC, and they also put out another plan, the Green Infrastructure Plan, and it's a, it's a 20-year plan to alloc- allocate large sums of money to green infrastructure, like green roofs.
1: Now, Jason, I want to back up a little to your research here in being one of the only researchers who are taking plant life and veggie life and trying to see how they're conducive to living together on green roofs. Mm-hmm. Why are you the first?
7: Well, there's been um, th- there has been very little research on rooftop agriculture in general. There's it's all... sort of new. It's, it, it, it is. Hasn't been around it's while. pretty new. There's a couple places in New York City that are that are. Uh, quote pioneers of it in uh, contemporary Gr- rooftop agriculture has been around since the Romans for hundreds and thousands of years. It just wasn't
1: called rooftop. It agriculture. wasn't necessarily
7: <laughs> called that, but this sort of this contemporary movement that's been going on for the past five years or so, maybe a little bit more, is really driven by two major um, organizations: uh, Eagle Street Rooftop Farm in Greenpoint and the Brooklyn Grange. Um, and in uh, based out of Brooklyn Navy Yards and Long Island City. And um they're doing full-scale rooftop agriculture. So as if you walked to a farm and saw row crops, that's what they're doing on a roof with a foot of growing media mounded up and you know the whole nine yards. And plants or veggies are both plant uh, fruits and vegetables. And when I say fruits, I'm referring to tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers, things that people don't normally think of as fruits, but are fruits. Uh, anything with seeds, in, of course, is a fruit. And um, uh, so they're doing rooftop agriculture. But there really has been very little research done on rooftop agriculture, the production potential, as well as the ecosystem implications of sort of doing rooftop agriculture. I only know of a handful of studies that have been published in peer-reviewed journals that address rooftop agriculture in a scientific way.
1: And mostly, I would think, and you tell me, are they looked at mostly from a structural point of view because of these buildings that need to be built along with this green roof structure for economic reasons?
7: Yeah, And actually, you you know, that's a really good point, because if you are going to be growing food on a roof, you will need deeper growing media uh, to get good yields. And to do that, you need a building that is structurally sound. So that's definitely an important factor. And the studies that have been published that I'm aware of have evaluated a variety of different crops and have started to determine what kinds of crops are most well-suited to living on and growing on green roofs. And if you went to Brooklyn Grange or Eagle Street, you would see these crops growing. Peppers seem to do well. Things that are hardy radishes um, do well. Tomatoes appear to do well. Things that don't do so well are um, leafy things like Swiss chard and spinach. Their leaves are things that we eat, and when the wind blows them around constantly, the cells inside those leaves actually, you know, feel like they're getting roughed up, and they they're like you know they're like Arnold. They go into the gym and they're like working out, and they're getting tougher to deal with those harsh winds. And as a result, they don't taste as good. Right? Who you wants know? to eat tough lettuce? Yeah, who wants to eat tough <laughs> lettuce? <laughs> <Or> spinach. Exactly. <laughs> So uh, we're we're definitely very limited by what we can grow for rooftop agriculture. And nobody has really looked at this idea of comparing or or evaluating growing sedum and vegetables together to see if there is a symbiotic or synergistic effect going on there.
1: What do you hope to accomplish with this research?
7: Well, I, I... As a scientist, I don't necessarily hope to accomplish anything except for to answer the question about whether or not... The question I want to answer is, do succulent sedums facilitate tomato growth? And when I say facilitate, I mean help. Do they help tomato growth, or do they compete against tomato growth? And does that competition or facilitation depend on the amount of water that is available. So this it's, it's idea, it's it's a trade-off between competitive and facilitative processes in high and low water.
1: So, Jason, how does the average person use that information?
7: Well, that's great. Once we finish the study, which we're doing this summer, On the roof with a couple high school students from a science research program at Mamaroneck High School. They're two amazing high school students, and a scientific uh, research instructor there. They're actually going to be the ones that are doing all the heavy lifting. I have a broken hand right now, so I can't really do too much. You'll Um, be thinking about. I'll be thinking hard. hard. I'll be pointing and saying, (laughs) "Right there, you can plant that one there." You know, Man- more managerial. Managerial, exactly. <laughs> All of my research stems from applied questions. And the question that I've been trying to answer for a couple of years now is how can we, what species of plants grow best on green roofs? And what types of soils should we use? And how should we grow them? Should we grow them in combination with other plants or should we grow them by themselves? And so if tomatoes end up growing better with this nurse plant, this helper plant, the sedum, sedum, then... People should grow tomato plants and sedum plants together because they'll get better yields and they won't have to water as much. And They'll, they'll learn how to take care of them They'll learn properly. how to take care of them properly, totally. So um, it's it's really to try to answer the question, how can we get the most bang for our buck? We can green our city. We can turn our city from a, a drab, gray, hot, polluted. dirty, polluted place into a urban jungle. And I don't know about you, but I would much prefer to be walking up and down streets of a jungle than uh, a concrete jungle.
1: Thank you so much, Jason. All right. Thank you. My pleasure. Jason Alosio is a Ph.D. candidate of biology, an urban ecologist, and the founder of St. Rose's Garden at Fordham.
0: Visiting a community garden in the middle of New York City is a refreshing experience. The city's soundscape fades away, and you can hear birds singing, leaves rustling, and maybe even a chicken clucking. But you don't have to take my word for it. Lisa Fabish is a community gardener who offered us a tour.
8: Hi, my name is Lisa Fabish. I'm a member of Pleasant Village Community Garden in East Harlem. We're on Pleasant Avenue between 118th and 119th Streets. We're on about 10 house lots, and uh, so it's a large space to maintain. We have plots for vegetables, we have flowers, fruit trees, and poultry here. We also lease a lot on 118th Street from HPD Housing Preservation and Development. Um, they've graciously allowed us to use a lot for gardening to accommodate additional gardeners and kids from the local school. Um, The garden is situated on 8 to 10 uh, lots that used to be uh, abandoned houses. And the street was full of abandoned cars, and it was a real mess in the neighborhood. And a local resident, Rose Gardella, who worked um, in the neighborhood in a school, was fed up, said it looks like a war zone, and let's form a committee and try and clean the place up. And the lots were full of rubble. They still are. There's still bricks and masonry underneath our feet, uh, underneath the soil. And uh, she formed a neighborhood committee, a beautification committee, to come in and clean up these lots. And once that was done, said, you know, why don't we plant something in the lots? People need to grow things. We need to make this not look like just a cleaned up lot. And so, lumber and soil was brought in and Beds were made for vegetables, and um, it went from there, and it's been around for decades. We're very proud of it. There are times when we come here in the evening after working in the garden for a day, and we'll have a barbecue. We We have permanent barbecues, and we have a few other grills. We light a few candles. We have dinner here, and you feel like you are in the middle of the country. And it's really, it's really our country house, for those of us who don't have country houses. This garden is really, it's everything to us, the members, and it means a lot to the people in the neighborhood who love watching the fruit trees bloom in the spring, um, who love to come here and have a barbecue once in a while, or just hang out and talk. Right now I'm looking at uh, some migratory birds. Um, We're a big patch of green here so we're one of the landing pads for migratory birds which is wonderful. We have a nice established rose garden with four or five varieties of roses which smells absolutely wonderful in May. We have two grape arbors where we cultivate delicious grapes that taste like nothing else in the world. We have a squirrel problem which is why our plots, our garden plots, our vegetable plots are usually caged. The squirrels will eat anything and everything that isn't tied down. Even if it's tied down, they'll pick the lock and, <laughs> and get it. Um, this is a berry patch. We have red currants, black raspberries, gooseberries, blueberries and strawberries. We have communal plots, which the, ber- the berries are one of the communal plots, as well as the herb and butterfly garden and flower garden here. You are allowed to pick them you know, within reason. Nobody really comes and clears it out. But, um, and then plots that people maintain themselves belong to those people, and often we trade vegetables. It's, we're not too proprietary about it. <laughs> this is our chicken coop and run. We had eight hens when we started out, and they used to run free. And we had a red-tailed hawk come in and pick a few off. So. <laughs> uh, and a couple died of attrition of old age. So um, this coop was built uh, in, in t- 2011 by the City Chicken Project, which is part of Just Food, which is a terrific organization. Um, we love the chickens, of course. We we don't name them because we don't want to become too attached, honestly. But But we really treasure them, and they give the best eggs in the world. You will never go back to supermarket eggs after you eat these. We have two hens. Um, there are Cona hens, and they lay blue-green eggs. They're absolutely beautiful and, and even more delicious than our Rhode Island red eggs, if you can believe it. They have a great sound. It's, it's really wonderful to be able to wander in the garden as if you were in the country, as if you were outside of New York. It's... it's It's head-clearing, and it's refreshing, and it's um, restorative. New York, of course, can be really hard on your head, and to come in here in the summer, it's 10 or 15 degrees cooler, and it's quiet. Um, You don't hear the sound of the traffic anymore. You just hear the sound of the chickens clucking and the rooster, and you do a few chores in the garden, and you feel just completely renewed.
0: That was Lisa Fabish of Pleasant Village Community Garden in East Harlem. I sense a runner in the garden. And that's it for the Strike Accord special, looking into efforts for a greener New York City.
1: If you'd like more information about WFUV's Strike Accord campaign or the initiatives you've heard about on this morning's program, visit wfuv.org/StrikeAccord. And a special thanks to producer Veronica Volk. Have a great weekend!
6: There ain't no cowboy in my hat, so now he's buried by the days.
0: It's WFUV and WFUV HD, New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham,
7: the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.